Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week I'm talking with Matt Bodner, host of the Science of Success podcast, which is a great show to listen to that I have recently subscribed to. And in this conversation with him, we talk about the psychology of business, contemplative routines, the 80-20 principle, and starting a work journal. Yes, you heard that right. This is a great conversation with Matt, so I'm just going to get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Matt Bodner. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Matt Bodner. Matt, welcome to the show. Eric, thanks so much for having me on here. It's always excellent to talk with yet another podcaster, somebody who's consciously, actively creating their own show and putting it out there. Yours is called The Science of Success. That's That would have been you know, another potential name for what I was trying to do with this show. You're doing something completely different, though. Mine's productivity-oriented. Yours is... Um, although we kind of touch on, you know, overlapping areas, but uh, do a quick pitch for your show and then maybe what's the origin of that show for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll explain the show and then the origin story is a, a rather circuitous journey. Um, but the show really is about what we call evidence-based growth. And so that, that spans a pretty wide spectrum. Productivity is certainly one of the things we touch on, but it's really about how do we look at science, research, data, evidence and and inform our life choices by by using that. So how can we be better at sleeping, productivity, emotional intelligence, all the kinds of influence, connecting with other people, all of this stuff. We like to bring in scientists, neuroscience, psychologists, all that kind of stuff, and really figure out what does the evidence and the research actually say? And then how can we make that super practical and, and applicable to our daily lives? So what does that mean in terms of changing our habits, changing our behavior, all of that kind of stuff? We try to marry all those things together, rooted in evidence and science to really create effective uh, patterns and modalities for change. That's so cool. You're basically doing the homework version of my show in a, in a way. Like mine is, I prepare to have conversations. You're doing research, man, and you're and you're bringing in like people who have like science degrees and things like that. Yeah, I mean, and and the funny thing is, there's so many of these people that have done crazy interesting academic research, and one the the sort of dirty secret is that they're easy, they're really easily accessible a lot of times. Now, some of the big names and the Robert Cialdini's of the world and stuff are certainly hard to get in touch with, but there's a lot of professors that are doing fascinating work around psychology, influence, consciousness research, all kinds of stuff, and you can just pull up the whatever.edu website, grab their email and email them and they'll come on and talk about all kinds of interesting stuff. And it's a great, the the challenge is always to how do you really take some of this raw science and make it into something that 
you can actually apply to your life. And that's really what we've, we've been trying to do over the last four or five years on the show. Yeah. And the secret there for those people is you're, you're not hitting them up for yet another interview. You're talking with them in a conversation that's fun for them around the topic that they enjoy talking about. So it's a little bit different. It's a different flavor of, you know, interaction for them and they enjoy doing it. Totally. Yeah, that's totally true. So, okay. So let's get to the origin because how did you get into this? How did you get into, uh, the idea of, you know, the science of success? So my, Still to this day, my day job, I'm basically a, a private equity investor and, and buy and sell companies. But I, as, as being part of that, one of the things I've always been super interested in is personal development, growth, all this kind of stuff. And, and even from when I was in college, I would just voraciously read all kinds of stuff, mindset by Carol Dweck and all of these, these books about psychology influenced by Robert Cialdini, predictably irrational by Dan Ariely, some of the books that really shaped my thinking fundamentally. And, and I came to the early realization through actually studying Warren Buffett and his business partner, Charlie Munger, that psychology is one of the most important things to understand if you want to succeed in, in business specifically, but really any endeavor that involves human beings, right? And everything that we do fundamentally, unless I mean, there's certainly things that fall outside of this gardening and, and things like that, that maybe involve the natural world in some way, but most of the things we do involve human interaction. And so I started to really study humans, right? How does the brain work? Why do people behave a certain way? Why do they do the things that they do? How can I get them to do what I want them to do? And and, and, and what's why do I do certain things? And what, what is shaping my thinking? Why am I resistant to certain things? Why do I leap into certain things really easily? Why do I make good decisions? Why do I make bad decisions? And all of that led to uh, a conversation with a friend of mine who owned a, a, a science news website at the time. It was called redorbit.com. I don't even know if it still exists. But he he basically pitched me and said, this is so interesting. You've done a ton of homework on it. You talk about it all the time. Can you turn this into a podcast and and we'll put it up on my website? And I was like, dude, I don't know anything about podcasting, but I can certainly talk about all this other stuff and I'm super curious about it. And so I'd love to give it a shot. And we basically launched it. Uh, it was a little over four years ago. It was four years ago in November. And pretty much it was an experiment at the beginning. We didn't know if it would succeed. We didn't know what would happen. And it ended up getting a bunch of traction, hitting new and noteworthy and all of this stuff and really took on a life of its own. There's a, there's a, there's a much more to the story even before and after that, including getting banned from iTunes, my business partner, the guy who founded the show with me, basically selling the website and abandoning the podcast so that I had with no experience of how to market, produce anything. The podcast had to figure all that stuff out on my own and many more things. But, uh, but today the show's great. We're, we, we're still growing. We, we've had some really cool people on and, uh, and it's been a great, project and a great journey that's really helped me improve tremendously as a business person. And, and I think the fundamental thing that I started out with, the, the thing that really seeded this journey in many ways was I wanted to learn all the important stuff that nobody talks about and nobody teaches in, in college or in, in business school. And all of this stuff, psychology, influence, self-awareness, how do we make better decisions, emotional intelligence, all of creativity, all of this stuff, is is virtually devoid of of any mention in in most business school curriculum and that blows my mind and it, because all these things are so critical 
and yet nobody's really talking about them. And and that is that has been a huge advantage for me and a huge learning for me is how can I start to apply all of the psychology and all these things to being a better business person, but really succeeding in any field or any endeavor that that I strive to succeed in. Yeah, what I hear from you as you're talking is, is you're saying essentially that psychology. It's, it's I don't know the the word psychology. I kept hearing the word. Uh, I kept hearing the words uh, self awareness, which is something we've definitely uh, talked about on this show before. We've never used the word psychology as much. Is there a difference to you, maybe, between those two? Well, self awareness is once is two words, but it's one word if you hyphenate it, and yep. then psychology is another word. What's the difference between those two, or what are the similarities? Yeah, to me, self-awareness is essentially a subset of psychology. And if you look at... Now, these things are... Well, let's let's zoom out. So psychology to me is a pretty broad spectrum term. So that can incorporate really anything governing human behavior, the behavior of others and the behavior of yourself. And then maybe even branching into things like neuroscience and brain research and that kind of stuff. Maybe that's a different field, but I, there's a tremendous amount of overlap there. And that's actually one of the biggest learnings about how to really understand reality at a more fundamental level is the realization that there, well, in, in the academy, there may be silos such as psychology department is different than the neuroscience department is different than the medical department is different than the, the history department or the business department or whatever in the real world, those silos don't actually exist. And, and oftentimes having this multidisciplinary cross disciplinary perspective where you realize that, that, the way to truly understand and explain reality, which a big part of that is human behavior, is through having the lens of everything from psychology to physics to chemistry to sociology to all kinds of different fields and and pulling pieces and threads from various different, uh, at the, the term of art is mental models from those various different disciplines and combining them to form a really robust understanding of reality. But circling that all the way back to answering the question about psychology and versus self-awareness, to me, psychology is the broad term that encompasses anything really to do with human brain, thinking, all of that kind of stuff. Self-awareness is, is essentially a, a if you niche that down and really get into that, it's a it's a really, really important stepping stone and probably one of the most important themes that comes out of psychology to the point where I've interviewed at this point hundreds of, of researchers, neuroscientists, all kinds of stuff. And the probably top two or three most recurrent themes on the science of success is this idea that self-awareness underpins pretty much everything else. And if you don't have self-awareness, almost by definition... How can you grow? How can you improve if you don't understand where you are today? How can you improve if you're deluding yourself about what your skills are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, etc.? And so self-awareness is really one of the first steps towards, towards growth in anything. And there are lots of parts of psychology that don't involve self-awareness. But to me, self-awareness is, is one of the cornerstones that really is almost the first step towards any kind of true growth or mastery. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but then when you're using the word psychology in regards to, say, studying the psychology of other leaders, how they did what they did, why they did what they did, you're almost taking a self-awareness approach, but self-awareness of uh, what they did or didn't do to then apply that to yourself. So to me, and, and there's a really useful rubric for, for thinking about this in a, in a broader context from uh, the field of emotional intelligence, which is, again, kind of a sub-niche of psychology, 
that Daniel Goleman wrote this seminal book about EQ, about emotional intelligence. And there's four quadrants basically to emotional intelligence. You've got and I forget the exact way to phrase the axes or whatever, but basically you have the self and then you have other people and then you have awareness and then you have management. And so the, if you look at the self, you have self-awareness, which is one of the four components of emotional intelligence. And then you have self-management, which is basically, are you aware of yourself, of your emotions, of your limiting beliefs and so forth? And then self-management, how good are you at actually dealing with your own emotions? Then if you look at the, the other quadrants, the same thing, which is basically other awareness and then other management. And to me, both of those things really fall into what I call influence, which is basically thinking about how do you read and understand other people? How do you figure out what their motivations are? How do you figure figure out why they're doing certain things. That's the awareness piece. And then the management piece is how do you influence them? How do you get them to, to work towards a common goal with you? How do you in a non or maybe in a Machiavellian way, get them to do what you want them to do? Right. And so those four pieces are all the, the four pillars of emotional intelligence. And to me, each of them is super important. And I, I, but I would distinguish between being aware of your own, strengths, weaknesses, limitations, et cetera, and understanding other people and why they behave certain ways. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, ultimately I lump all of that, you know, not to, not that I want to, but I kind of put all of that under the umbrella, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, under that umbrella of understanding of knowledge work, whether it's knowledge about someone else, knowledge about yourself, knowledge about for for that matter, what you want to get done and making decisions, which we'll get to yep. later, um, it it all comes under that understanding to then be able to make decisions about it. Absolutely, and I think it makes perfect sense that psychology then ties right into business because in so many ways, uh, like you said earlier, and this is something that you know is some people in the business world and especially in the like social media marketing world, which I've had a lot of. Uh, contact with people there uh, through day job and things like that is people start to remember, oh, yeah, we're we're dealing with people and and we're interacting. It's all about relationships. In other words, I've heard stated so many times over the last decade and a half in regards to social media. So it's not surprising to find that business and psychology are very much linked. And and that reminds me of this is just within really the context of marketing. But Seth Godin had a great quote, which is there. This puts it into into light. People always talk about, oh, what's your email strategy? What's your social media strategy? Right. Like if, if you really think about it, if, go all the way back. People didn't used to say, well, what's your telephone strategy? Right. Before social media and all that stuff existed, because at the end of the day, it's all about people. That's it. There is no there is no that all of the other things, social media, email, phone, whatever it might be, going to conferences, in-person, all that stuff, it's all about human interaction. But it's the the importance of understanding psychology to be successful in business goes way, way, way beyond just marketing, right? Marketing can certainly benefit tremendously from understanding the core principles of influence and stuff like that. But I mean, it, it there is almost nothing that happens in business that doesn't involve humans at a fundamental level, right? You You have employees, you have yourself, you have customers, you have every single thing that's happening in a business in some form or fashion is either about delivering value to a human, recruiting, hiring humans, working with humans, working for humans, uh, you know, having humans be your employees, all this kind of stuff. And so there's, there's almost an infinite amount of facets that psychology can be used to uh, 
can, can be applied to when you think about the the like business as a larger context, right? And, and everything from internal internal to a company, external. When you think about marketing, when you think about growth, when you think about yourself, and, and this comes back a little bit to the, the same notion of self awareness, which Peter Drucker, one of the le- most legendary management consultants of all time, had a great quote, which is, "The bottleneck is always at the top of the bottle." And when you think about that, and, and Tony Robbins talks about the same thing, which is basically the psychology of the leader is almost always what's really holding back an organization. And when I say psychology leader in that context, I'm talking about what are their beliefs? What is their mindset? What are the biases that they have? What are the things that they're telling themselves about reality that may or may not be true? What are their behavior patterns? And all of those things can have a huge effect on on limiting the growth of a company. And there, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of value that can be mined both from understanding yourself and from understanding others and how they behave using the principles of psychology. I love that you brought that quote up because I think that directly relates to the importance of this is that it doesn't matter if you've got this massive group of people below you and you're the leader, it's still going to all come down to you. Or or for that matter, if you're dealing with someone who is the leader and they're the bottleneck, you will you likewise need to learn some self-awareness as well as their psychology. Absolutely. And there's there's so many there's so many applications of this that that go. I mean, everything from in a very, very micro sense, using body language cues to read somebody in a conversation, mirroring their behavior to build subconscious rapport with them all the way up to thinking about somebody's life and their background and all this stuff. And, you know, why do they believe that this is the right course of action? What's shaping their behavior? What beliefs do they have that are, that are causing them to behave in this way? What goals are they trying to achieve? There's, there's so many layers of analysis. It's, it's almost crazy, but you can really start to, as you embark on the journey of understanding that stuff, you can start to piece by piece, build an understanding of human behavior. And what are the reasons that people typically react in certain ways? What are the reasons that people, even in a micro context, like what are the reasons people buy your product? What are the reasons people want to sell a company? What are the reasons that people fire their vendors, right? I mean, there's, there's infinite applications of this, but there's, there's so many ways that you can, that you can crack it or look at it that it's, it's been uh it's been a very fruitful area of study to mine, for my own personal benefit, but also through the podcast and sharing those lessons with other people, it's been a great journey to really start to honestly just scratch the surface of the fundamental question for me is why do humans do certain things and how can we get them? How can we influence them to do the things that we want them to do? Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com 
slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I think maybe it might be a good idea to take it from maybe a leader's perspective as well as uh, maybe someone further down the chain and say, you know, if we're just getting started becoming aware of, you know what, I've just seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of the importance of psychology uh, from a leader's perspective, what would you say is a good starting point for them to start to dig into other than material related to this that's in your own yep, podcast, of uh, obviously, where would they go to start to um, become a better leader in regards to psychology and all the benefits that can be found there? Yeah, this this applies to me. Two of the fields that move the needle the most from a business perspective that this applies to one is leadership, which you insightfully brought up, and the other is sales. And, and there's there's many more than that as well. But those two really can create a big impact in a very short amount of time. From a leadership standpoint, the first place that I would start is looking at what psychology researchers call contemplative routines and integrating those into your life as a leader. And I'll explain what those are in a second, because those can be tremendously impactful and tremendously valuable. Now, contemplative routines can can take a variety of forms, but in the fundamental at the end of the day, what they are basically taking time to step back from the day to day, from the grind, from the hustle, from the constant state of reactivity that we all live in. You know, today, most people wake up, immediately check their email. They spend all of their time or the vast majority of their time in a state of reaction. They're always reacting to other people's demands, text messages, emails, Twitter posts, Facebook posts, Facebook messages, all this stuff all of this external stimulus bombarding us constantly. There's there's literally an infinite amount of it now that we have social media and the internet and all of this stuff. Contemplative routines are carving out time 
even if it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, that you can step back and that you can be proactive instead of reactive. Contemplative routines are about taking, getting a little bit of perspective and figuring out what are my goals and priorities? What am I thinking about? What, what am I afraid of about this? What, what are my thoughts around? Should I make this decision? What are the factors that are really playing into this? Where should I be spending my time? You know, doing things and, and, and contemplative routines is a pretty broad category, but it can encompass everything from doing, spending 15 to 20 minutes doing an, an 80, 20 analysis on your business or doing an 80, 20 analysis on your time. It could be meditating. It could be finding some way to get a little bit of distance from what's going on in the day-to-day of your business and your organization to really understand what your priorities are, what your goals are, and how and and asking yourself truly if where you're actually spending your time is is aligned with those goals or not. Because what what a lot of research shows and 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 I know this applies to me personally and and I've seen this a half dozen times in companies that I've consulted with or worked with is that almost everyone spends maybe 20 or 30%, but certainly less than 40% of their time on anything related to their goals. And there's some really cool psychology research that I can, that I can send you. We could throw in the show notes or whatever around that. But the, 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 the fact that we spend definitely less than 50% of our time, usually it's more like 20% or less of our time on what our goals are. And that's assuming that you've actually defined your goals really clearly and you understand what the levers are that move you towards those goals and so forth is a serious problem. And it's so, so easy to be just in the, the, the tumble wheel of constantly reacting to everything that's going on instead of just pausing and, and stepping back and realizing, hey, the vast majority of this stuff is actually irrelevant and has nothing to do with what I wrote down as my goals. Why don't I spend 30 minutes working on my goal or an hour working on my goal or a half a day or even a whole day a week, which would be pretty crazy working towards what your stated and most important goals are. And so to me, leveraging or embracing contemplative routines in some way, bringing those into your life and and just setting aside, you can do this today or you can do this tomorrow. The first thing you do when you get up in the morning, before you check email, before you run into the whirlwind of, of daily life, spend 15 to 30 minutes doing a simple contemplative routine. It could be meditation. It could be a journaling exercise. It could be an 80-20 analysis. Just some kind of thing that that lets you step back and think from a higher level. Where should you be spending your time? What should you be doing? What are your key priorities? Are your activities driving what you actually think is important or what you know is important? And what can you cut out? What can you stop wasting time on? They're really simple questions. It's not rocket science, but it's just making it making a little bit of time to figure out what actually matters and and aligning your your time and your activities with your goals is is tremendously powerful. This I think is identifying one of the if not the biggest productivity hurdles or just deflation elements to getting anything done that people have which is I just don't know what it is I'm supposed to be doing right now. I don't know how to make what I'm doing right now move the needle any further. And it's not that they don't know what a next step could be. It's that they haven't aligned the the self-awareness element, the contemplative element to it. They they don't and, and first and foremost, 
they're not making time for that. They're not calendaring or routining, which isn't really a word, but uh, they're, they're not making a routine of contemplative practice, either first thing in the morning or even at the bare minimum, some sort of weekly review like David, David yeah. Allen talks about. It's huge. And honestly, GTD is a great framework to start to implement some of that stuff. The The GTD weekly review for me is a, is a huge way to just spend an hour thinking about how what am I doing next week and how can I every single week I'll, I'll look at everything I did in the last week, everything I've got in the upcoming week, and then I'll look at my goals and I'll say, how can I make sure that this week is actually aligned with what my goals are? And how can I spend more time? Are there meetings I need to cancel? Are there things I need to reschedule that aren't aligned with what my core goals are? And if that's the case, it's it's usually pretty obvious. It doesn't take a huge amount of breakthrough understanding to see that. You can usually just realize, oh, you know what? I'm actually wasting a bunch of time doing X, Y, and Z. And if I if I didn't do that, I could spend a couple more hours on the stuff that I know is really going to be important, is really going to move the needle. Now, I th- I think there's definitely benefit to doing a daily, but there's also benefit to doing a, a weekly and even like a quarterly uh, and-, and maybe to throw in there on a-, a monthly. What would you say? Let's go drill down the deepest, though. What would you say would be the biggest differences between doing a daily ritual here as well as a weekly and what the differences between those would be? I have I have my own ideas, but I'm curious about what you think. Yeah, so this this makes me think about I have and this is my own process that's honed from years of, of study and research and practice. And, and it certainly may not be the the daily ritual, the daily routine that works for everybody, but having some kind of routine or some kind of ritual is super important. And I'll tell you exactly how I structure mine. But before I even get into that, I, I think it's really, really important to understand the principle that to me, it's almost like a, a beachhead or a, a land and expand type of situation where if you just get the first half an hour, that half an hour will start to make you realize where you're wasting time, where you're spinning your wheels, where you're getting distracted, where you're getting derailed. And then that frees up more time. And then now you have an hour and then that hour frees up more time. And now you have two hours and you get to this point where you can free up massive chunks of time on stuff that you used to just be spinning your wheels and wasting a bunch of time and energy. And then that's how you actually get leverage on your time and really start to figure out how you can create more impact for the same amount of time spent. So that's all the pretext to tell you. My my routine is basically structured around a couple simple principles on a given day and then tying that all into a weekly routine that includes a weekly review. I actually start with the end of the day because I think that's uh, that's that sets up the following day. And so at the end of the day, what I typically like to do is to ask some kind of question or frame some kind of challenge that I'm dealing with. And it can be any it can be super granular, it can be super small all the way up to, you know, how do I what am I supposed to do with my life? You know, I mean, it can be what do I do about this this meeting that I'm worried about all the way to how should I spend the next 20 years? And it's really just what questions are bothering you. What things are you worried about? What are you trying to achieve and you're, and you're struggling to achieve? And you set that question out at the end of the day and then you let it go. Whenever your workday is finished, spend a little bit of time in rest and recovery because that's another thing that's very research validated is the importance of having some downtime, having some recovery time, having a little bit of time where you switch off conscious focus on something. And there's, there's a huge amount of neuroscience research about this concept called creative incubation. Mm-hmm. Which essentially, if if and and 
you're probably familiar with it, but it's this idea that if you've ever been working on a puzzle, really struggling with something, playing a video game, you can't beat the level, whatever it is, and then you go have lunch and then you come back and you instantly beat it or you instantly solve the puzzle or you instantly figure out the solution that you were trying to deal with. What happens on a, in a, on a neuroscience level when we consciously focus away from something that our subconscious picks it up and starts doing all this massive recombination, recalculation. The subconscious is, is a processing beast and it will, it will do all the heavy lifting for you if you let it. But the only way to let it is to consciously focus on something else. And so I like to feed that, that question into my subconscious and then spend the rest of the evening with my family relaxing. And then I go to sleep. And then when I get up the next morning and this is, this is an optional step, but I, a huge believer and it's probably one of the most evidence-based things you can do that's good for you is I like to meditate first thing in the morning. And then after meditating, then I spend 15 to 20 minutes journaling on answering that question. And so that really gives me the opportunity to try and tap the subconscious insights that have, that have been processing and recombining. And I think accelerated and enhanced by meditating and, and try to create some new insights, some new ideas, some new strategies, some breakthroughs around whatever that particular issue is that I'm struggling with. From there, this is this comes back to the weekly review. Typically, what I'll do in my weekly review every week is set out by reviewing my goals. What are the one to three key things? I mean, this is this is textbook like bread and butter productivity stuff, right? You you know all these things already, but set out one to three most important tasks every day. And and assign those. So Monday I'm doing this, Tuesday I'm doing this, Wednesday I'm doing this, and on on when I do my weekly review, I'll set that out for the whole week. And mm-hmm. so then even before looking at email and there's some cool plugins and stuff you can use to basically block yourself from seeing your inbox. Um, even before looking at email, I'll spend, I'll try to spend an hour, two hours, maybe three hours, depending on the project or the task, working on proactive, most important things that I have predetermined are the critical things that I can do that week to create as much progress as possible towards my goal. And so, then after all that stuff is done, then I start to get into emails and meetings and all of the all of the busy work and all of the noise that comes with day to day business and life and so forth. And then wrapping that up at the end of the day, coming all the way back, frame the question, and then the day starts over again. I love that. And 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 not only are you doing in a sense, creative work with that daily, that, that morning, That's right. that, that shutdown, that shutdown routine and startup routine. And then the weekly review, you're kind of queuing yourself up that way. But then with the weekly review, you're able to then say, okay, I'm going to set a course, but then in the daily start and shutdown, you're allowing for course correction as well as more creative elements and the answers to the questions you're asking yourself, uh, the answers come to light. That's such a good point. And it, it's something that I get emails from listeners all the time. And I encounter people all the time that that struggle with this. And I don't know what it is about my psychology. Maybe I've just read enough books, interviewed enough people that it, that it just has sunk in deeply with me. But it's this idea that you don't have to have a perfect strategy. You don't have to have a perfect plan. And course correction is a necessary and natural component of anything, right? whether it's your productivity strategy, whether it's accomplishing your goals, whether it's figuring out what your goals should be, it's so much better to have a, a loose and flexible framework that you can that you can pivot when necessary and then start 
as opposed to really saying, well, I don't know if this productivity routine is perfect. And until I get a perfect one, I'm just not going to implement anything. And then you wake up six months later, or a year later, or whatever, and you're in the exact same place that you were before. And you haven't changed. You haven't moved the needle. You haven't moved towards whatever that big goal is that you want to achieve. And and to me, having that ability to course correct, having that flexibility, and even having the the psychological flexibility of saying, you know what? It's okay that I don't have a perfect strategy. It's okay that I know that I'm going to course correct in some way is tremendously helpful in releasing some of the pressure and some of the stress that it that it's so easy to put on ourselves around trying to make sure that our strategy or that our our actions or whatever are perfect and it it ends up sabotaging what you're trying to do you know i mean i every single week when i set my my most important tasks it's basically a best guess at the time it's like this seems reasonable that it'll probably move the needle towards what my goals are and and a lot of times in hindsight, maybe it was totally worthless. But the net result of that is that I'm spending way more time working on stuff that usually pans out to be relatively important. And it it, it creates this slow compounding impact where six months down the road, a year down the road, even one or two years down the road, it may not seem like a lot is happening. And then all of a sudden, all of those little hours that I've spent, that I've carved out, that I've said, hey, this seems like it's going to create the biggest impact on the thing that I think is the most important, just start to stack and multiply. And then anybody who's seen a compound interest calculator or an exponential growth curve understands the power of compounding change. And that's what contemplative routines create for you in your life. They create the space that you can use to start compounding your time, compounding your results, and creating exponential leveraged growth and leveraged output on everything you want to do. But until you set aside that first 30 minutes and just start to clear the clutter out, and until you give yourself permission to be imperfect while you're doing it, you're going to struggle and you're going to feel frustrated and you're going to be caught in that vicious cycle of reactivity. Most people, they're like two levels, not deeper, but lower than this higher thinking, I think. There's a certain group of people, uh, and I've been these people, so you know, I'm not shaming anybody. But So have I. Yeah. There's, there's a certain group of people where they come in and they sit down at their desk and they just start doing stuff. They're not really thinking about it. They're not being, they're not, they have no self-awareness at all. They're literally just opening, opening an inbox or inboxes and they just jump from thing to thing and just do the next thing. They're, they're being that reactionary self, but just in a confined area of work. And they think that that's okay. And, you know, for certain positions, maybe that is okay, but. Then there's that next level, which still is in between that one that I just spoke of and the one we were referring to, which is they're they're asking themselves, okay, what do I need to do today? And they at least look at the scope a little bit for the day, maybe for the week, but then they're not entering into the contemplative area. And again, I think this is where in between the cracks of these three different states of mind is where often most people start to literally fall down the cracks of productivity and the breakdown happens. Yeah, that's a really good insight. And, and it's something that to me, that's why I I just, if you can just start with even 20 or 30 minutes, it's amazing how much realization you can have around where your time is going and whether or not it's actually aligned with your goals. You know, I did this, I did this exercise, I, I put on this live event a couple months ago and did this exercise where 
I just had everyone start out with their life goals and everyone, it was super easy. Everyone, you know, everyone was done with the exercise really quickly. And then I started backing it down. I said, okay, so if that's the goal for your life, what are those goals? What are you going to be doing? What are your goals for 20 years? Right. And then we backed it down to five years and then we backed it down to one year. And, and so as you start to scale those goals down, you start to realize that at some point the rubber has to meet the road. Like the actions that you're taking have to actually do something to move you towards your goals. And that exercise, I could see people's brains like breaking as they were thinking about like, well, I want to do that thing, but I'm not spending any time, energy, focus, whatever on this thing that I've said is one of the most important things I want to achieve in my life. Why is that? And if you can just start, that's that's another, by the way, that whole exercise is another example of a contemplative routine, figuring out what your goals are and then backing them up and figuring out, okay, now that I know what my goals are, how do I start to create activities in my life that are actually going to move me on the trajectory of what those goals are? Because it's 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 really easy in principle to to think about the idea of aligning your goals with your actions, but it's in practice, it's really hard and and causes a lot of friction, a lot of trade-offs, a lot of tough questions, a lot of uh, a lot of confusion around where you should be spending your time and what should you, you should be doing and all of this stuff. And if you have this contemplative space in your life that's carved out and, and routinized in some way, whether it's once a week, whether it's every day, wh- however you think about structuring it, it really gives you a lot of breathing room to start to think about, okay, here's how I'm going to do that. Here's what I want to be doing. Here's how my activities are going to line up with that. And and the beauty of this whole creative incubation framework that I talked about earlier in my daily routine is that whatever the question is that you have about that thing, whether it's, okay, I don't know how to align my goals with my activities. It's, okay, I know what my goal is, but I don't know what of these five activities is going to be the most impactful in, in moving me towards that goal. You should use that framework to answer those questions. So ask that question at the end of the day and then sleep on it. Don't think about it and then come back to it the next day and journal about it. And you may not get an answer the first time. You might. But over time, you really start to pull all kinds of unique insights and breakthroughs out of your subconscious that can be transformational in the way that you spend your time and ultimately in the results that you achieve in your life. That's a great place to start. I think another possible place for for those of us that are thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can fit in the time to do this uh, on, a, on a daily or even a weekly basis or both, we've got to shoehorn it in. A lot of people are like, wait, what's a shoehorn? Well, it's what makes you help. What, it's what in the, in the olden times made it easy to slide your shoe on. So in other words, it's a, it's a way to make things easier. Uh, and I'm glad I just uh, old timer explained something for the first time on this show. But uh the 80-20 rule is probably another really easy place to enter into in terms of, uh, you know, m- monitoring, not monitoring time. What am I, what am I missing here? It's, uh, analyzing your time, figuring yeah, out. It's, uh, doing a, what, what is it? It's time tracking. There it is. Uh, yeah. the 80-20 rule is another easy way to enter into this contemplative process because you can do it as like one part time tracking, one part, hey, what am I even doing? What did I do yesterday as kind of a, starting up the day or what did I do last week and what do I do need to do next week? And meanwhile, monitoring uh, that time and then, and then applying it to the 80, 20 rule. Um, and we should probably do a quick disclaimer. Okay. The 80, 20 rule is 
So for listeners who don't understand the 80-20 principle, let me clarify that or just make sure that, that I give you a little bit of context about what that is. The 80-20 principle is a, a principle that was discovered originally from an economist named Villafredo Pareto, who was looking at the wealth uh, and the distribution of wealth in nations and found that basically 20% of the people had 80% of the wealth. And he thought, oh, that's a really interesting pattern. And then he started to see this pattern or some version of this pattern, which is which is which can be generalized to the law of the vital few, which basically describes this, this phenomenon where a vital few have a massive outsized impact, right? So 20% of the people have 80% of the wealth, but all the way down to 20% of the P's or 20% of the pods in a garden of peas have 80% of the peas, right? And the 80-20 principle can explain phenomenon ranging from the distribution and size of craters on the moon to the, the allocation of files on your hard drive to the revenue generated from various customers of your business to all kinds of crazy phenomenon. And what you can start to uncover and realize is that if you look across each of those, oftentimes a few people are causing 80% of your headaches. A few customers are causing 80% of your profits, right? And the cool thing about the 80-20 principles is it can be applied both ways, both positively and negatively in the sense that you can look at and say, okay, what are the few things that are causing most of my problems? And you can also flip it and say, what are the few things that are creating most of the, the positive outcomes in my life? And it's a, it's a really powerful framework. It doesn't apply to absolutely everything, but it's a really useful tool and applies to a tremendous and varied array of phenomenon in, in reality, everything from rabbit populations to all kinds of different stuff. And uh, it's it's a great tool that you can use to analyze everything from time, income, sales, all kinds of different pieces of both your own life and your business. So I think for a lot of people, another way to wrap their head around this would be able to say, I mean, and this doesn't get into the numbers, the 80 or the 20 at first on the surface of it, but it's to just ask yourself of what I'm doing, what's working and what's not working, and then look at the math after the fact, as after you've listed stuff off. But another thing is to, to ask this question of what I'm doing, what do I want to keep doing, and what do I not want to keep doing? Because that other, hey, there you go, self-awareness, there's that yep, other added, right. you know, added layer of, well, if it's working, but I don't want to do it, can I get somebody else to do it? Or if it's not working, and I don't want to do it, that's an easy thing to get rid of. Yep. Even beyond that, another great example of a contemplative routine would be keeping something like a work journal, which is basically spend at an absolute minimum a day of your life. But it's really great if you can do it for a week and just write down everything that you did that week, especially trying to understand what are the activities that are repeated and how much time is being spent on those. Because oftentimes what you can do is if you keep a work journal, and by the way, this also works if you're a leader, we're talking about leadership earlier, if you're a leader or a manager, it's a great thing to have everyone on your team do. Because oftentimes what you can find out is that there's a ton of time and energy that both you and your team spend on things that may not even need to happen at all or things that are producing very little value and taking up a lot of time and energy. And once you have that inventory of all the the tasks and things that you're spending time on, you can start to say, okay, well, let's do an experiment. What would happen if we just stop doing this for one week? Or what would happen if we stop doing this for two weeks? Or what would happen if we outsource this or what would happen if we found you know a new person to delegate this to and let you focus on the more important stuff that that's going to create more value for the organization that that you're uniquely gifted at doing right and so a work journal is another 
component that fits into this whole big mess of, of, of contemplative routines. And it's a great complement to an 80-20 analysis as well. I love this. And, and of course, you know, this, all of what we've talked about so far has kind of been hidden or Trojan horsed under this umbrella of, or getting into this, this mindset of how to be better at decision-making by having all this self-awareness, by asking yourself these questions, but by getting into the habit of taking a look at where you're at and where you want to go and taking a minute to, you know, and then to ask yourself the questions and doing the weekly routines and the, or the weekly reviews, uh, it, it almost builds muscle memory for better decision making. Obviously, that's just the beginning. There's so much more to doing better with decision making, but this clears the deck so much of a lot of what frustrates people about being able to move forward in any kind of productivity or forward motion on their goals. And, and that, again, as I tried to, re- to, to iterate or reiterate earlier in the conversation that that's where the breakdown happens of most people when it comes to their biggest problem with productivity is, is they're just like, I don't know what my next, it's not that it's not just, I don't know what my next action is. It's, I don't know how to choose between my next actions. I don't even know when to begin this project or when the right, you know, and and again, this is all, honestly, this is all thought work. This is all, again, some of the thinking about the work, homework, pre-work, whatever you want to call it, that David and David Allen and I talked about last time that I spoke with him a few months ago. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you hit the nail on the head that this is something that I see so frequently people struggle with that they they don't know what to prioritize. They don't know what to focus on. They don't know when to start. They don't know how to start. And then it comes back to what I said earlier, which is just start. Don't beat yourself up. Just just get something that's rough, that's a proxy that kind of may work and do it. And then over time, you're going to refine it. You're going to improve it. You're going to get results from it. But until you take that first step, you're you're going to be stuck in a hamster wheel. Uh, man, and getting out of that hamster wheel. And again, it, it's fu- it's funny that we're saying action is the way out of the hamster wheel, right? Because we we think of being stuck in the hamster wheel as or hamster wheel. Sorry, there's no P in there. I should know. Uh, it's getting unstuck from a hamster wheel means moving, still moving, but moving in a different direction, doing action That's in right. a different way. Exactly. And and that's the key way that the the question that underpins a lot of this this thinking and I've spent years and years wrestling with this is is how can we be more high leverage. And and what I mean by that is for the same amount of time because every person on earth has the same amount of time. But if you think about it, some people are getting insane amounts of results from that time and some people are getting very very little results. And and what is the differentiating factor between those people? If they have the same amount of time, at some point, the the work harder perspective has to break down because you can't work 10,000 times harder, but you can have 10,000 times the impact if you're doing the right thing. And you can think about that from a money standpoint. You can think about it from an audience standpoint. You can think about it from a social change standpoint, whatever the perspective you want to use is. But the reality is that some people have more leverage on their time than other people. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why is that, right? It's because they use contemplative routines. It's because they focus on the stuff that's going to have the biggest impact. And it's because they step back and ask themselves whether or not what they're doing is actually the right thing to do and whether it's actually aligned with their goals. It seems so just 
common sense that we're saying this is like, well, if you know, you have, you need to step back and actually ask yourself these questions, actually do the thought process, actually do the homework. But like I said before, with the way we were prescribing, people should go about it. And then the two other examples I have, which were much less involved, much less intentional, I think is really the word we're going for here is it's passivity. And so, of course, if you're ready to wake up from passivity and become more intentional and get more out of life and get more out of your business and get more out of your relationships, then this is the path to that. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, we, we ended up going deep down this productivity rabbit hole, essentially, even though there's so many, there's so yes. many, uh, things you can use to, to be a better leader, to be a better salesperson, whatever it might be. But it's, it's such a worthwhile endeavor. And if you haven't gone down that path yet, that to me is, is really, and it comes all the way back to self-awareness. You have to be aware of where you spend your time. What are your goals? Are you aligning your activity with 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 how your time is spent and and with what your goals are? And if if you're not asking and answering those questions, then there's a serious gap between where you think you're going and where you're actually going. Mm. I think what we've done here is really just make a case for why people need to subscribe and listen to your show. So <laughs> you're very kind. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I know that I for one, and I, and I will. I don't. I don't always do this, but. I will say this. I know that I have in your show found yet another show uh, to subscribe to. And so that's always, I hope, high praise. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I mean, I would love to. Well, here's the thing. We're definitely going to have to re-record, not re-record. We're going to keep this. Record again. You will have to come back, in other words, yes. on the so show. So many more things we can dig into. Yes. There's so much more we can talk about, but not right now. And so uh, open invitation. You will come back on the show. We will take another deep dive and continuation on this conversation. But for now, let's dr- let's drive people towards uh, your show and where they can find it and subscribe and listen. Absolutely. So the show is available anywhere podcasts can be found. It's called The Science of Success. And our website is successpodcast.com. Uh, it's also simple. And, and, and by the way, if you're listening to this right now in a podcast player, which I don't, I mean, if you're not, you're on a website or in a browser, so you can easily open up a second tab and do what he just said. So, uh, all that to say, Matt, thank you so much. I'm going to link up everything that we mentioned, uh, in the show notes. And thanks again for being here. And this will be the first of many, uh, appearances, I hope. Well, Eric, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you for having me on the show. And uh, and I look forward to having some more insightful dialogues with you. Thanks. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Matt Bodner. I know I did. And you definitely should go check out The Science of Success, his podcast. I'll link that up in the show notes, which you can find at beyondthetodolist.com slash Three two two. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you do me the favor of sharing it with somebody you know would benefit from it as well? While you're at those show notes, you can hit the share button or hit the share button in your podcast player app of choice where you're listening to this. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving a rating or a review. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next episode.